Hi, I'm Jamin. So uh, in the fall of 2016, I went to go visit my parents in Western Maryland. Um, that's the, you can't really read the font, but they live in the Western part of Maryland right there, the red part. This is a 2016 election map. Um, you know it's a real map of Maryland because it has an American flag next to it, so we know it's legit. Um, so my mother stopped at a gas station to drop me off on the way to the airport, and uh, while I was there, there were these two, uh, two kids in their 20s, um, a cashier, and another one dressed in hunting fatigues, and they were exchanging their gamer tags. Gamer tags are like, uh, it's kind of like your first name online. It's a way to introduce yourself to other people. Uh, video game consoles have been really bad about sharing their, like using Facebook or Twitter. So it's kind of like a social network for people who play games on Xbox. Um, while I can't assume their political affiliation, I can guess at least their station in life was pretty different from my own. Um, you know, I'm not from Maryland. Uh, I grew up outside of Philadelphia, not too far away, but, um, you know, I went to school up north, you know, I went to private school. My parents went to Princeton, which is where they met. I worked at the Wall Street Journal. I'm half Mexican and half black. And so if I was pressed to make a bet, I wouldn't place very high odds that Myself and these other guys were going to see eye to eye, politically, ideologically, morally, in any sense of the word. So, of course, I chimed in. I said, are you guys playing Battlefield 1? Which is, that's this video game right here. You can ride a camel, you can play as the Red Baron. Um, it's very, very exciting. And the one in fatigues, he, he turned to me and without missing a beat said, I really, really want to but I can only afford one game purchased this month, and it looks like it's gonna be this other game called Overwatch, which is another popular first-person shooter game. The three of us chatted a bit more, and I explained what I've been playing. I have this yearly ritual where I drink wine and I play Call of Duty every year around Christmas. Um, so I shared that with them. Uh, <laughs> might be the only person on the planet who does that. They both told me about the PCs that they were building, uh, like building a PC is a much cheaper way to, to play video games, for example. We chatted for a bit more, and then I bought my gum, and I walked out the door. In that moment, we had something in common that would have belied race or class or economic situation. We had play. Fast forward a couple weeks later, so this is around Thanksgiving, it's a family dinner in the Hollywood Hills with a set of staunch Democrats, uh, more of the Hillary type than the, the Bernie persuasion. Um, these were, you know, older liberals, definitely more progressive, enough on social issues, probably not that crazy about universal basic income or like other out there ideas like free college and things like that. Um, but they were also, you know, they also economically share a lot more with me. So, of course, the conversation comes up, you know, they ask, well, what do you do? That's pretty common. Although I, I found since moving to Los Angeles, no one ever asks what you do. That's like, a, like in New York, it's the first thing out of people's mouths. So in L.A., it's actually kind of unusual. So I try to explain what it is I do. You know, I used to be a journalist, and I started this company with a magazine, a website, all focused on games, play, and interactivity. And I get this response from, you know, another mother at the, at the table. The conversation kind of turns south. I'm sort of used to it at this point. <laughs> um, uh, she said, you know, I don't want my son, her son was at the dinner table, I don't want my son making video games because I want him to see sunlight. She was concerned that he was going to spend all of his time in the basement. And so I nodded very quietly and tried to explain that video game creation is this very creative, collaborative, pro-social behavior I don't really convince her, and so we move on.
The contrast between my lived reality and my occupational one couldn't be more stark in these two uh, interactions. So, you know, at a dinner amongst ostensibly a group of my educational, ideological, and economic peers, I'm playing defense. In another part of the country, south of the Mason-Dixon line, I find this moment of understanding, a moment of connection. By no means does sharing like a virtual battle, battlefield bridge the enormous gap, the ideological gaps between myself and these two young men. And you know, obviously I don't know their personal beliefs. I'm kind of using them as a proxy. Um, but you know, given the sort of political makeup of the place where I was at that time, it's probably not that much of a stretch. But in the most likely, unlikely of ways, talking about games was a start. That spark of connection is the seed of what makes games games, that two people can disagree about nearly everything in life, but in play, they share a passion that connects them. It's the same thing, it's, you know, as profound as it is rare. If you watch the little kids, like, on the playground here in New York City, for example, they come from all different economic backgrounds, uh, you know, different races, creeds, background stories, but on the playground, there's a common objective, to climb, to play, to enjoy oneself. And in bigger ways, I do what I do precisely because games, I think, can unite us, even when we're at our most divided. But there's a question. Why, why on earth would I believe that? I didn't know Tim was actually also going to be talking about a Dutch academic. I didn't. <laughs> I guess we really end the conference like brown guys with glasses talking about <laughs> dead Dutchmen. <laughs> um, so this, this one's mine. His name's Johan Hausinga, and the odds are, unless you're a games academic, you probably haven't heard of him, which is a bit of a shame. He's a really special guy. He's special to me. Again, I wouldn't think I would find a connection uh, you know, with someone like him, and yet, here he is. Um, he was a student of Indo-Germanic languages and the son of a, prof a professor of physiology, and he'd already established himself pretty well in the world of academics. Uh, he also was at the, he was at the University of Leiden. Um, where he, he taught a variety of different things. Leiden is a really interesting town. It's where the pilgrims spent some time before the Dutch totally freaked them out and they left. Um, it's also the home of Rembrandt. There's a statue of him there. And this is where Housinga lived and worked. Oh, there's also Ikea's headquarters are also in Leiden for some weird reason. Um, so nearly two decades into his career as a history professor, he turned his eye to a really strange subject, something that was probably a bit unexpected for his very austere post. He turned the games. So he wrote this book, that's it on the right. It's called Homo Ludens, and the idea was to kind of place a play as an idea in this larger conversation about human, uh, about the nature of human reality. So you think we have Homo erectus, you know, humans as walkers, upright humans. You had Homo faber, which would be humans as workers, which was very popular uh, during the industrialization period in the 19th century. And so for Housinga, he wanted to introduce this idea of Homo Ludens. Uh, um, ludere is the Latin word for play. It's this sprawling opus that he wrote in 1938, and his contention was that play and games were elemental to our understanding of human society. For Housinga, it was just as important, all the things that he had studied in linguistics, in history, it was just as important to understand what happened in a hand of poker, or with the whip of a double play, or the crack of a jump rope those things were of central importance. He opens the book writing, 
play is older than culture. Again, he's writing this from the home of Rembrandt, right? Um, he's writing this from a place, an academic university, where culture happens. The Dutch were the center of the world for, you know, for, uh, for a very long time. And he argued that you know, play started as an evolutionary trait. We see it with animals that they, they play with each other, for example. Um, you know, dogs play. It's pretty common if you go to the dog park. Um, but for him, play was wedded to human nature itself. And every aspect of what we do, law, aesthetics, language, all of these would manifest themselves through these dynamics of play. And the strange thing is that no one had really studied this at the time, um, writing this in 1938. Plato talked a little bit about it. Wittgenstein talked a little bit about it. But given all the things that academics had studied, play was one of the things that somehow I just missed out. So I'll be honest, the book is a bit of a mess. I wouldn't necessarily recommend reading it. Um, the opening chapter is really, really good, and it's sprinkled with these really profound nuggets. But uh, a lot of it, you can see him trying to bring all of his disparate interests together under this one, kind of this one big idea. And so one key part of his definition is that play is, quote, to quote him, a free activity standing quite consciously outside ordinary life as being not serious. This is really, really important. Playing games uh, sit outside of everyday life, and we pass in and out of what he called the magic circle. Is this idea that when you stepped into game spaces, the rules of everyday life didn't necessarily apply. Um, that there was this new thing, there's this transformational quality to play, where uh, you know, you could do something that you could do in a play space that you couldn't do in real life. So, for example, if I put on a helmet and pads and tried to tackle someone on 2nd Avenue, right, like, I would get arrested. But if I did it in the Super Bowl, and no apologies to any Patriots fans, I'm from Philadelphia. <laughs> um, but if I did in the Super Bowl, for example, I could make millions of dollars. So something special that happens when we play, that we play games, we, we make these exceptions. And... It's interesting because Housinger also studied religious ritual as well. So, you know, the idea of eating bread and taking wine in one context doesn't mean very much. Uh, that's just like a, a Wednesday night, I guess. Uh, but in a different context, obviously it takes on this much more profound significance. He thought of religious sites of, as a Dutch Calvinist, he was someone who thought of uh, the, the act of being part of religious communities, that that was also part of this magic circle, that something special happens when you step into the sacred spaces. But his point with play was very simple. It's this idea that we want to connect to something bigger, something outside of our differences, something beyond who we are and what we love and what we believe in, and something that, um, something that can connect us, especially as humans, as they always have been, are divided in thought and action. This may all seem to be theoretical, right? Like, oh, this is just this Dutch guy who's writing about play, but like, you know, what does this actually, actually mean? The allure of play can be large, it can be restorative, um, at least for a moment, and it can reconnect bonds that have been severed even by the pains of war. How many of you have heard the story of the Christmas truce during World War I? Oh, amazing. It's one of my favorite stories. Some of you have heard of it. Um, in short, you know, during World War I, obviously you had two sides that hated each other and were fighting over battle. And there was this moment on New Year's Day uh, where English and British soldiers, they, they put down their weapons and they played a game of soccer with their enemies if just for one day. Um, historian Stanley Weintraub, has, he paints this picture in a book from 2001 called Silent Night the story of the World War I Christmas truce. 
It's a, great, it's, a, it's a great little story, but, you know, essentially they had a conversation about whether or not they wanted to do this. They had planned on it earlier, but they couldn't find the time. They cleared the field of, you know, of bodies, of, uh, you know, of artillery shells. Basically, this was a site of battle. And for a couple hours, they put down their arms and decided to play soccer together. These are people who the very next day were going to basically go back to what they had been doing for months earlier. But in this moment, they decided to play games together. Um, it's an incredible, spectacular story, and uh, that amongst the living and the dead, a game of soccer could be managed is, is really profound and it's promising. And, um, you know, on the one hand, you could say, well, isn't this just simply like a form of escapism, that this was, you know, given all the things that were happening in warfare, that these were just people who were looking for an opportunity to avoid their everyday surroundings and escape into something else. And I would say, yes, that's precisely what it is. Games are an escape, and that's what makes them so special to me. Um, that games and play, again, for housing is definition, that games and play are not part of the real world, that's part of their joy. One of the things that you know, I've noticed is uh, when we, oh, hold on, there you go. Um, when we talk about games, one of the critiques that are levied against them is that they're escapist. And, you know, I would argue that escapism in these trying times is something to be celebrated. To not look for something outside of our present moment, as those soldiers in World War I did, I think would be a sign of stubborn and unnecessary resistance. You know, we turn to all manners of activity to carve out some quiet that sits outside our everyday worries. You know, for some people it's meditation, for some people it's long walks, some people it's naps. Um, there's a great talk by a woman named Jane McGonigal. She's a She's a game designer, she's a thinker, she gave a talk at TED, it's very popular, got millions of hits, as I'm sure this talk will get online someday. Um, she divides escapism into these two different categories, into self-suppression and self-expansion. Self-suppression is fleeing from unpleasant thoughts, perceptions, and emotions, and self-expansion, on the other hand, that's what pushes us to find new skills, develop stronger relationships, positive experiences, and most importantly, to take big risks. So a lot of times when we talk about games or other forms of culture being escapist, we're thinking about that former category as a way to get away from things, to not think about them, as opposed to a way to get away from things because we have to think about them every single day. In, uh, in her TED Talk, McGonagall uses this great example of the kingdom of Lydia, as, uh, the, the, the perils of the kingdom of Lydia as related to us by the Greek historian Herodotus. During a great famine, uh, dice games were actually invented from sheep suckles in part because there were so many dead animals. And so the king of, uh, the king of, of Lydia had this great idea. He needed something to save his troubled kingdom. And he establishes this new policy that one day people would eat and then the next day they would play games. And the thought, of course, is that games are so alluring that people would ignore the fact that they're starving. Um, as anyone who's like spent time finding themselves like lost in a game or missed a subway stop because you're playing something on your iPhone, right? You know the trance that you can get into when you play games. And so for the king of, Lyd uh, king of Lydia, he thought this would be a great way to distract people. And that cycle actually lasted 18 years, according to Herodotus. So after nearly two decades of starving, the king, of, uh, the king had basically reached his limit. He's like, I, gotta really, I really have to do something about this. And it does beg this question, like, how good was that dice game that people would play it for 20 years, right? 
So he divided the kingdom into two different pieces. And then he literally rolled the dice and he sent the quote-unquote winners on an adventure to search for a new land where they could live. And now there's this DNA evidence that the group that left this kingdom were actually the Etruscans, the forebears of the Roman Empire. And they share the same lineage, uh, same lineage as those starving Lydians uh, many, many centuries earlier. The argument is that Rome might not have become, you know, one of the most dominant forces in the ancient world uh, if the king hadn't literally played dice with his own country. So for Jay McGonagall, there's like a neat bit of historical determinacy, right? No games, no Colosseum. It's that simple. But it does sort of make you wonder if those poor Lydians had, been, had continued to starve for, let's say, another decade or a decade after that, starving and eating, starving and eating and playing games in between, would have that time spent ostensibly having fun and playing dice, would that time have been wasted? If the king hadn't sent away uh, half of his residents for this foolish and seemingly impossible quest to find salvation abroad, would that time spent playing games have ultimately mattered? I would argue absolutely. It's precisely during these moments of intense strife and difficulty that games ultimately speak to us. And that's what really moves me about the Christmas truce example, uh, or as soldiers playing games during wartime, or Lydians rolling dice to distract from their current environment. To look for some form of escape, no matter how momentary, that strikes me as human, right? Uh, and this can be as simple as uh, you know, a quick game of Candy Crush or Dots or whatever you might be playing on your phone or something more deep and meaning and imp impactful. It's the same thing that we do with television, right? We sort of vacillate between the simple joys of The Bachelor and a more complex show like Westworld or something like that. Um, the opposite way, I, I think a lot of times we have this expectation that we have to be, you know, this guy, this surfer on Nazare in Portugal surfing in a hundred foot wave, right? That we have to sort of like face all of the things that are happening in our life and all the division and strife like head on. I think that looking for ways outside of our contemporary pains to simply bask in the joys of play, particularly with those that we have almost no connection with, that should be a welcome addition to our lives, not something to be walked away from. In a previous generation, you had things like bridge and bowling, both games, obviously, and that served as social capital, as a way to connect people who didn't share very much in common. And my hope is that the common language of games, whether it's Overwatch or chess or whatever, could perhaps open the door to some unexpected collisions with those profoundly different from ourselves. Um, because I think the reality is, is that we live in very strange times where, you know, a rapper like Kanye West would wear a Make America Great Again hat. And I have to admit, it, this happened this week and I'm really shaken by it. Um, things are very weird right now. We're all in the sunken place. Um, and so, of course, the question is, like, how can you play at a time like this? Play as French theorist Roger Calois. He basically picked up, uh, Calois picked up Hausinga's book and five years later wrote his own version called Man Play Games. And he argued that play, as the way he describes it, is an attempt to substitute perfect situations for the normal confusion of contemporary life. An attempt to substitute perfect situations for the normal confusion of contemporary life. The operative word there is attempt. He doesn't say solution. He doesn't say this is going to fix everything. But it is an attempt for us to make sense of what's going on in the world. And by no means do I believe that getting harassed online for your know, gender or ignoring a fellow arcade goer or someone you're playing board games with if they're wearing a Confederate t-shirt is acceptable simply because you're sharing a controller playing games together. 
Um, and you know, as noted, the Christmas truce guys the very next day went back to doing the thing that they had been doing earlier. They wouldn't even be there if not at war, right? Um, and yet, um, I still hold, have hope. Um, it's interesting with Housinga, again, to continue this idea of, I guess, what happens to free-thinking Dutchmen who speak their minds. Um, the end of Housinga's life really points to the disconnect between these dreamy ambitions that he had for play and the reality of where we actually are. He publicly critiqued the Nazis in 1941. Remember, he's writing this in 1938. And the Nazis had started to exert influence over universities like Leiden and over Dutch academia at, at large. And so Housinga was interred with nine other professors. There had been an attack, uh, a resistance attack in Rotterdam, and Housinga and other academics were held up as scapegoats. Leiden University was closed. It's the oldest university in the world, and it was closed. And so they sent him away. He was huddled in this small house with a blown-out window with his wife and his young daughter. Um, after his first wife had died, he very famously would play solitaire all the time. This was a way for him to sort of make sense of what had happened, the pain. Solitaire and golf are the only two games that you can actually play by yourself. Um, and Housinga died in detention uh, in, in southeastern in southeastern uh, Netherlands on February 1st, 1945, just a few months before the close of the war. I spoke to his biographer a couple years ago. I had the pleasure of traveling to the Netherlands. Um, as I said, I'm, I'm kind of really interested in this guy, and I spoke to his biographer. And his biographer said, you know, the, the circumstances in which this guy died in were just, it was, it was so embarrassing given how important he was and influential to people who are interested in play. My hope and contention is that the games we play hold some of the keys for negotiating conflict and building communities. Games are that much more vital now in this present contemporary moment because they encourage us to abandon the things that make us different in exchange for a life well played. They allow us to see each other outside of the preconceptions that so often divide us. They put us into this magic circle where those two young men in Western Maryland aren't just bundles of my own preconceptions and frustrations. They're just fellow players like me, if only for a moment. Thank you.